The first crewed mission of any space program is a landmark event. When Allard Shepard climbed inside his Mercury capsule with Freedom 7 painted on the side, he stepped into history. His short 15-minute suborbital flight put America in the running in the race to the moon. Four years later, Gus Grissom and John Young were the first to fly the bigger Gemini capsule. They flew three low-Earth orbits in the new capsule, which would become a testbed for the steps required to go to the moon. John Young holds the unique honor of flying two American spacecraft on their maiden voyages. In 1981, he became the first space shuttle mission commander flying Columbia for the very first time alongside Robert Crippen. Of course, due to its complexity, the shuttle required a crew to launch, making Young and Crippen the only Americans to fly a new craft on its maiden voyage. That's why John Young is a Hall of Fame astronaut. Absolutely. On the surface, Apollo 7 carries the same mantle as Mercury 3, Gemini 3, and STS-1. But as we'll see in this episode, the first crewed flight of the Apollo program was both quickly overshadowed by later accomplishments and its reputation marred by the behavior of its crew. From the lovely Apollo room, high atop everything, this is a special episode of Liftoff brought to you by Squarespace and Eero. We're marking the 50th anniversary of each crewed Apollo flight starting today with Apollo 7. My name is Stephen Hackett and I'm joined as always by my co-host Jason Snell. Hello, Stephen. Very special episode today, and we should get to it. So Apollo 7 was commanded by Walter M. Shira, that's Wally Shira, senior pilot and navigator Don F. Isley, and they were joined by systems engineer R. Walter Cunningham. The three men spent 10 days in space. They made 163 orbits in this brand new shiny Apollo capsule. It would be the last flight for all three crew members and Isley and Cunningham's only mission. There's a reason why, and we'll get to that in a little while. <laughs> the trio was named as an Apollo crew back in 1966. They were originally going to fly the second crewed mission, taking a Block 1 command and service module on an Earth orbital mission. They were to follow in the footsteps of Gus Grisham, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, who were slated to be the first Apollo crew. After the fatal pad fire of Apollo 1 in February 1967 that claimed the lives of those three astronauts, the schedule was heavily reworked. The Block 1 spacecraft was grounded. Shira, Isley, and Cunningham would now take a Block 2 spacecraft to orbit and become the first three-person crew in NASA's history. They were to test the life support, propulsion, guidance, and control systems of the overhauled Apollo capsule and stay in space up to 11 days, depending on how well the vehicle performed. The flight was renamed to Apollo 7 after NASA retroactively applied the Apollo 1 name to the mission that claimed Grissom and his crew's lives just 20 months before this liftoff. It launched aboard the Saturn 1B as low Earth orbit was the destination and the lunar module wasn't flown. The Saturn 5 was simply just too much rocket for the mission. In our series on Mercury, we kept discussing how every single mission had seven in the name. We should clarify this is not why this first crew Apollo mission was called Seven. Apollo numbering is pretty arcane. It's not worth spending a lot of time on, but here's a quick recap. Apollo 1A, 2, and 3 were uncrewed tests of the Saturn 1B rocket. Apollo 4 was the first test flight of the Saturn 5. Apollo 5 tested the lunar module in space. (laughs) It's a confusing naming scheme. Yeah. No doubt. 
Uh, Apollo 6 in April of 1968 was the second launch of the Saturn V. And as we previously described on this podcast, it was kind of a disaster. Yeah. They had big pogo vibrations that would have injured astronauts had they been aboard and caused two second stage engines to shut down prematurely. And the third stage restart failed entirely. Lots of problems aboard Apollo 6. Lots of problems, a lot of analysis after the fact. NASA did identify those problems and decided that they had learned enough from those issues to fix them and make the Saturn V ready for a crewed test. But not yet. That would come later. The next mission would be the first crewed mission, and it would fly on a Saturn 1B rocket, leaving the first crewed use of the Saturn V for Apollo 8 later on in 1968. So now that we've got all that numbering down, let's talk a bit more about the crew of Apollo 7. Of course, Wally Shira was a veteran astronaut, having made six orbits in his Mercury capsule, Sigma 7, back in October 1962. He served as the backup command pilot for the Gemini 3 mission and commanded Gemini 6 and led its historic in-orbit rendezvous with Gemini 7 in 1965. In total, Shiraf flew just over 295 hours in space. He also ended up being one of the most recognizable Apollo astronauts after his days at NASA were over. He worked as a consultant for CBS News. He helped Walter Cronkite cover all of the lunar landings. And he even had a career as a commercial endorser, which we'll get to in a little while. (laughs) There are a couple of Shiraf stories that I think are fun to revisit. As the Gemini 6 and 7 joint mission was in December, he pulled a Christmas-related prank for the ages. Shiraz had slipped a harmonica on board his flight, and he called down to controllers that he had seen a Santa Claus-shaped UFO as he played jingle bells on his instrument. Then there's the story about Shiraz using his position to help Gunter Vent, who had worked at the launch pad for the Mercury and Gemini missions as McDonnell aircraft engineer. Uh, As the Apollo capsule was built by North American Rockwell, Wendt was not present for the Apollo 1 disaster. Shira and Deke Slayton persuaded North American Rockwell to hire Vent away from McDonnell, and Shira even requested Vent's shift change so that he could be present for the Apollo 7 launch. Vent can be seen in many, many Apollo-era photos helping astronauts into their capsule, and he was often the last face they would see before the tower retracted from the launch stack. There's rarely a movie or TV show about the Apollo program that doesn't have someone doing a German accent uh, playing the part of Vent in the White Room. Yeah, it's part of the color of the Apollo missions, especially, is Gunter Vent. I want, as they say in, is that Apollo 13? Or maybe it's from the Earth to the Moon. I wonder where Gunter Vent. Uh, there's always <laughs> a Gunter Vent in these things. He's such a, a figure. Interesting to find out. Wally Shira was key in getting him hired away from his previous employer so they could keep him in the White Room. Yeah, I like that story. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store, or maybe you want to create a portfolio or write a blog. Well, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. And the best part is there's nothing to install. There's no software updates to worry about, no patches, no server stuff. Squarespace just has all of that covered. You just don't have to worry about it. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you do need any help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. At Relay FM, we use Squarespace to power our blog. So anytime there's an announcement about a new show or going on tour or there's new merchandise, whatever our announcement is, we go into Squarespace 
I can do Markdown and, and right there in the browser, I can drag images in, I can do a gallery. It's all very, very straightforward. So I can go about my work. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for liftoff. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Now I think it's time to talk a little bit about the launch and uh, and get into the details of what happened in space. So Apollo 7 lifted off on Friday, October 11th, 1968. Five. The Saturn 1B operated perfectly. The astronauts praised it over the bumpy ride the Gemini-era Titan II provided. Once in orbit, one of the first tasks was to swing the command and service module, usually just called the service module or the CSM, around and have isolated practice a simulated lunar module rendezvous and docking. So they didn't actually have a lunar module with them. So engineers had installed a docking target inside the spacecraft adapter at the top of the Saturn 4B, that second stage of the Saturn 1B. Accessing this required that four panels open up exposing the target. And you sort of have memories of the angry alligator here that one of the panels didn't fully swing out of the way. Now, this could have spelled the end of the line if they had had a lunar mission and the CSM had not been able to pick up the lunar module. So subsequent 4B stages were designed. So these panels were just completely jettisoned to avoid any possibility. So instead of just folding back, they were just gotten rid of so that the opening was nice and clean. Now, one of the most important objectives of this orbital test flight was to put the engine at the end of the service module, the SPS, Service Propulsion System, through its paces. They got, they got to test this thing. Um, they have to insert the docked CSM and lunar module into a lunar trajectory. They've got to pull the vehicle out of lunar orbit and put it on a trajectory back to Earth. Super important that all of those things work before you go to the moon. This motor was fired eight times during Apollo 7 and performed nearly perfectly in the vacuum of space. Shira, feeling the vibration of the first firing, I think he got a little excited and uh, kind of famously yelled, yabba dabba do, the catchphrase for Fred Flintstone. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's not a dinosaur like running around out there. It's actually a, an engine, but uh, I like that. I like that a lot. Now, not everything went perfectly with the hardware. Uh, it was a shakedown cruise of an all-new spacecraft, and it showed. The drinking water hose trigger was difficult to use during the last two days of the flight. This was eventually tracked down to an O-ring that had expanded, making the trigger hard to engage, but it meant that Wally Shira didn't get his coffee as easily, and it made him uh, grumpy. Lots of things made him grumpy. We'll get to that, but that was one of them. Some of the biomedical instrumentation was broken and actually became like physically hot during operation. That's not good. Not good. Not great. Uh, the crew reported fogging in the command module windows. 
This was tracked down to chemicals off-gassing from the insulation used in the walls of the spacecraft. A similar issue had been noted before during Gemini, and Rockwell would eventually change out the panels so the fogging wouldn't, wouldn't be a problem on future flights. But in general, the spacecraft's electrical and fuel systems experienced a few small hiccups, but nothing serious enough to jeopardize the crew or their mission. Yeah, for, I think from the hardware perspective, Apollo 7 was pretty much a win. It's what you want when you're um, when you're doing your first crewed mission in a spacecraft, right? Like, there were bugs, but generally, like, the, the approach is we can fix the bugs. Like, right. it, everything else went pretty well, and we found these bugs that we could fix, and that gave everybody more confidence. Absolutely. And life aboard the command module was more freeing than the much smaller Mercury and Gemini capsules. There had been fears that the movements of the astronauts would actually make the craft more difficult to fly via the attitude control system, like you you bump something and the whole spacecraft spins, but it never panned out. It worked fine. <laughs> like you're in a small boat and you're rocking back and forth? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, no problems there. The additional space and longer mission included uh, important upgrades to the in-flight menu. The Mercury 7 were stuck with like various things that could basically like squeezed out like toothpaste, like a bunch of just paste. But you're not in space very long, so you know you can deal with it. With Apollo, you were going to be in space a lot longer. It had both hot and cold running water, even though that, that trigger did fail. Uh, that mm. did open up new options. According to a New York Times article in October 1968, Sharaf found it a little difficult to make coffee in the command module, but enjoyed it once he had the process worked out. And this was famously, Shira had said, if I'm going into space again, I'm going to have coffee. He really wanted his coffee. And they, he was able to do it. It was a little more complicated. Everything in space is complicated, but he was able to do it. They um, also had a bunch of menu options on these flights that were not available when you were just having space food out of a tube. Um, spaghetti and meat sauce, beef sandwiches, vegetable and beef soup, corn chowder, tuna and chicken salad, pineapple fruitcake, banana and chocolate pudding. Um, now, that food all was dehydrated. It was, you know, astronaut food like we think of astronaut ice cream today. Um, it, so it needed to be rehydrated. So when I said earlier that the last couple of days they were having trouble with the water trigger, that was annoying because it meant they couldn't rehydrate their food without getting the water trigger to work better. Yeah. You could see where that would be frustrating. Yeah. So in addition to testing all this equipment and docking procedures and figuring out how to eat corn chowder in space, the crew participated in taking measurements with a sextant. Uh, orienting the spacecraft with the stars. Uh, they also televised themselves from orbit a total of seven times, a first in space travel. The crew won an Emmy Award for nationwide television broadcast known as the Walt, Wally, and Don Show. At the top, when I said from the high Apollo room above everything, that was how they opened one of the shows. I like that little showbiz patter. It was pretty, pretty funny. During these broadcasts, they were able to show off the spacecraft in detail. They showed lingering shots of control panels. They explained. It was very educational, like how this control panel worked, what they use it for. They talked about eating and drinking in space. It's from that uh, lovely Apollo something. You guys should write Hollow room. High atop everything. High atop everything. Looks good. I can see Wally Hamlet now. And Don has a smile on his face and there's Walt. Okay, what's the next one? A little closer, Wally. Says keep those cards coming. Cards coming in. Coming in, folks. It's loud and clear. Good morning to everyone in television land. You're looking at the right-hand portion of the main display console. 
In the upper left-hand portion of your view, you would see the uh, instruments that have to do with the cryogenics that are used to power the fuel cells and provide breathing oxygen to the spacecraft. They blew people away because this was just so early on to get those images of their utensils floating around, beverages spinning around within transparent containers. They also took pictures of parts of the Earth that had never been seen from space before. Yeah, a lot of firsts when it comes to sort of the media side of NASA here. Not everything was as smooth sailing inside the spacecraft as the spacecraft itself was experiencing. The 11 days in orbit took its toll on the crew and their relationship with ground controllers. Uh, so Shiraz actually came down with like a cold, like 15 hours into the flight. And in the completely closed quarters, at least one, but probably two, I read conflicting things here, but the cold spread to other crew members. And, you know, you think about a head full of sinus drainage here on Earth being annoying, if you're in a low-gravity environment, it can be painful, even disorienting. Uh, you don't have gravity helping you drain your sinuses, and it really added a level of stress to the mission that was uh, kind of over the top. Yeah, the only way you can relieve the stress is by you know holding your nose and, and blowing, which is extremely painful, especially in space. It's not, it's not good. Um, this, the, to put a positive spin on the fact that everybody got sick in space and it was really awful and they were miserable for days, um, Wally Shira ended up being the spokesman for Actifed cold medicine for years in the 70s and 80s, referring to the fact that he got sick in space. Uh, Isley appeared in at least one of those ads, and in it, they discuss specifically getting sick in the Apollo 7 capsule. What's great about flying Apollo 7 with you, Don? What was that, Wally? The adventure, the excitement, the cold you gave me. And the Actifed cold tablets the doctors gave us for my stuffy nose. And my sneezing. Only Actifed has been on every manned U.S. space flight since Apollo 7. It's available full strength without a prescription. Only Actifed is the cold tablet most recommended by doctors. Wally, if you give someone a cold, at least give them some good advice. Sure, take Actifed. It's just what the doctors So when people talk about Apollo 7, the concept of space mutiny almost always comes up. Yeah, it doesn't sound uh, that great, right? Space mutiny, it's like, that's not good. Um, and although we've been talking up to now about all these great boxes that were checked in terms of the technical objectives of Apollo 7, the fact is that the human side of this mission was a mess in a lot of ways. Wally Shara had been tangling with NASA over abort procedures during ascent. Um, they had their colds, but they also had motion sickness, uh, because, of course, this capsule was larger. They could float around the cabin. That made things worse. So they got space sick. Um, the food was more and more varied than in previous missions, but it was crummy. And I mean literally crummy. There were food crumbs floating around the cabin. One of the things they did to make sure that these guys got their uh, calories was they had these sweets that like high energy sweets. They had like calories and protein and they were meant to be like dessert and they hated them. Apparently I can only imagine what they tasted like, but apparently they tasted really awful. Uh, so, so yeah. So the food situation, even though there was all of this food, it ended up being um, maybe more of a negative than a positive. So a couple more things sort of go into the story. After a navigational exercise didn't work as planned, Shira called down and said, I wish you would find out the idiot's name who thought up this test. I want to talk to him personally when I get down. And Isley quickly jumped in, not to stop Shira, but to basically join in and complain about a different test they had to had to go through. 
Yeah, it's not. So now they're ganging up on Capcom and they're ganging up on everybody down in Mission Control. Now, uh, a backup evaporator broke down at one point, which threatened the water supply. Because what one of the things that was going on here is that they're taking the moisture out of the air and then they're, they're filtering it and putting it in the water supply. And this is a little like the Apollo 13 story, right? Where it's like engineers down there on the ground came up with this clever fix that you kind of like do this. This is the story that always makes us smile about NASA's ingenuity. What do you have up on the spacecraft? How can we do this and jury rig something so that you can still get water? Uh, however, this crew did not say, hey, that's really clever. Thanks for getting us our water. Instead, they complained about it repeatedly, including at one point saying that the fix looked pretty Mickey Mouse to them. After I'm sure people scrambled to figure it out. Worked really hard to take care of them, yeah. and they were basically ungrateful. I think Sir Ross struggled with the fact that he was commander of his spacecraft, but that he did not have the final word over what happened with it, his crew, and even his schedule. As early as the planning of the Mercury capsule, there had always been this give and take, this push and pull between astronauts and management about who was in charge and who can make what decisions. And it feels like Apollo 7 is where all of this really came to a head in a couple of conversations between the capsule and the crew uh, leading up to the television broadcast. During Apollo 7, they had added some things to the timeline. Shiraz was already annoyed at some additional uh, SPS burns. They had to do like a urine dump and adding things to the schedule, and they were already behind. And Shiraz basically called down and said that there would be uh, no television footage until an upcoming uh, upcoming milestone. There was another argument before they started re-entry. Of course there was. Of course there was. The crew said they should re-enter with their helmets off, unlike the process used by the previous two capsules. They expressed concerns that they could burst their eardrums due to the sinus pressure from their colds if they were wearing pressurized helmets. They thought it would be more comfortable to re-enter without. The crew, if they'd been wearing their helmets, would have also been unable to hold their noses and try to blow and equalize the pressure in their ears like you talked about. Uh, and the Apollo spacecraft had an enclosed helmet. There was no movable visor. So you put that helmet on and you can't touch your face. You can't, you can't deal with this. And uh, we decided we're going to read a little bit from the mission transcript. So here, Jason is going to play the part of Deke Slayton on the ground, and I'll play the part of Wally Shira. And I'll just point out, Deke Slayton is not the Capcom. So, like, this has escalated to the fact that the head of the astronaut corps, basically, has been <laughs> brought in to try and talk some sense into these guys. Oh, boy. Here we go. Okay. I think you ought to clearly understand there is absolutely no experience at all with landing without the helmet on. And there is no experience with the helmet either on that one. That one we've got a lot of experience with, yes. If we had an open visor, I might go along with that. Okay, I guess you better be prepared to discuss in some detail when we land why we haven't got them on. I think you're too late now to do much about it. That's affirmative. I don't think anyone down there has worn the helmets as much as we have. Yes. We tried them on this morning. Understand that. The only thing we're concerned about is the landing. We couldn't care less about re-entry. But it's your neck, and I hope you don't break it. Thank you, babe. Over and out. That's a little tense. Yeah. 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 I yeah. hope you don't break it. Yeah. So the ground was concerned that without the reinforcement of the helmet being attached, uh, that you would 
have neck injury as the capsule slowed down from the drag of the parachutes and then subsequently smacked into the surface of the ocean. Yeah, it's kind of like whiplash in a car crash. That was what they right. were worried about. Uh, but in the end, they did land without their helmets, of course, in direct violation of NASA policy and expectations. They did survive, but they were uh, they just basically ignored their their rules, the the uh, the orders that they got from down below. Not great. It's not great. Not great. Uh, more to talk about, but first, let me tell you about our other sponsor in this episode, this very special episode. It's Eero. With Eero, you can build a Wi-Fi system that's perfectly tailored to your home. Considering this high bandwidth world we live in now, you need a distributed system in your home so you get the best speeds everywhere you go. You don't want to say, oh, over in that corner of the bedroom, the internet is bad. That is not great. With Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home. It takes just a few minutes. It's super easy. It starts with the second-generation Eero device. It's got three different radios operating at 5 gigahertz. That means that it's got increased speed and range, and it sits flat on any surface and connects over Ethernet or wirelessly. Then you can easily expand coverage throughout your home by adding in the Eero beacons. These are little devices they plug directly into your wall, they talk to the base station, and they allow you to reach every corner of your home. And Eero now has something called Eero Plus. It's designed to provide simple, reliable security to help defend all the devices in your home from malware, phishing, and unsuitable content. Eero Plus can automatically tag sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content, so you'll have powerful parental controls. It has ad-blocking functions to help improve load times for websites that are full of privacy invading ad tracking. And it's also possible to have Eero Plus check the sites you visit against a database of millions of unknown threats to prevent you from visiting anything malicious. Eero Plus even includes subscriptions to Encrypt.me for VPN protection, 1Password for password management, and Malwarebytes for antivirus solutions. Stephen, have you used Eero Plus? I do. I've got it on my network. So I've got, you know, young kids in the house and they've got devices and I just want to be extra careful that they don't stumble into something. And uh, so I have a bunch of that stuff turned on. You know, in the past, filtering and stuff was so complicated. You had to change your DNS and do all this stuff. And with Eero, I simply turned it on in the Eero app on my iPhone. And I know that my network and my family are, are safe and sound from the bad stuff on the Internet. So as a listener to Liftoff, you can get $100 off Eero's best-selling Wi-Fi package and a whole year of Eero Plus. Go to Eero.com slash Liftoff, and at checkout, use the promo code Liftoff. That's E-E-R-O dot com slash Liftoff, and the code Liftoff. Thank you to Eero for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. At 7.11 a.m. Eastern Time on October 22nd, 1968, Apollo 7... Touchdown, landed back on Earth in the Atlantic Ocean, just southeast of Bermuda, less than two kilometers off target. On landing, the capsule turned nose down, uh, so they were kind of <laughs> upside down the ocean for a second. Stable two, I think that's called. Stable two is a nice way to put it. It's like, it's the wrong way, but they have little bags. Yeah, so uh, they had airbags that could inflate and make the capsule turn upright. So the crew gets picked up by a recovery helicopter, and they're transferred to the USS Essex less than an hour after splashdown. When you hit your target so specifically, you can get uh, rescued pretty fast, or recovered anyway. Uh, The mission lasted 11 days, almost 11 days, very close, 163 orbits. This was a test because they knew moon missions were going to be very long. They wanted to see how long they could stay up there. And things went so well that they were able to extend the mission to nearly 11 days. What that means is that Apollo 7 ended up spending more time in space than all Soviet space flights up to that time combined. It's a 
big leap forward in the space race, no doubt. Yeah. The Apollo 7 capsule can be found on display at the Frontiers of Flight Museum at Love Field in Dallas, Texas. I have not seen the Apollo 7 capsule. I've seen others, but I haven't seen seven. Yeah, well, go to Dallas, go to Love Field, fly right in there. Yep, there it is. As a test of technology, the technology that's going to send people to the moon, Apollo 7 was a complete success. I think we've detailed why, but here's a big but. From the perspective of NASA, the performance of the astronauts was just not up to par. Wally Shira may have just had enough of being in the space program. Yeah. I don't know. Had a long history. Some people think that he was changed by the deaths of his three fellow astronauts in the Apollo 1 fire. Honestly, I don't know how you couldn't be, especially when you're going to be the next crew uh, after that. Less than two years since that fire. Either way, the happy-go-lucky Wally that slipped a harmonica in his pocket to get to go on Gemini. Yeah. Uh, he seemed to be gone. And the new Shira was cranky throughout mission planning and, of course, while on orbit. So in a particularly awkward moment during a press conference before the launch, so this started well before they got sick, uh, Shira told a story about how astronauts got angry at contractors whenever anyone modified the smallest components on the spacecraft. This was a difficult conversation to have between astronauts and NASA and contractors, even in private. And here is Wally Shira talking about it openly in front of the press. To make it even worse, uh, in that conversation, he used the hatch on the spacecraft as an example. Now, everyone there, the reporters, <sighs> NASA, contractors, uh, the guy in the back of the room sweeping the floor, everyone knew that the hatch was the thing that it ultimately killed the Apollo 1 crew. They couldn't get out. And to bring that up in that context was a very clear line back to that disaster. And needless to say, NASA did not appreciate that line of conversation. Yeah. So throw in uh, all of that and then the insubordination during the mission, the mutiny before the landing about the helmets. You can guess what happened next and you'd be right. Wally Shira had already said he this was his last flight. So he was he was done. But almost immediately after they got back, uh, NASA's flight director, Chris Kraft, said to Isley, who had b- b- jumped in with gusto, as we said, when uh, Shira was complaining about stuff, to also complain about stuff. Chris Kraft told him he's never going to fly again. That's it. Now, Cunningham was sort of put in the penalty box, but given the possibility that he might eventually get a reprieve. Um, however, that never happened. And uh, these three guys never went into space again. That was This was the end for them. In fact, tension between NASA and the crew was so great that unlike every Apollo crew, these three were not awarded the NASA Distinguished Service Medal by the mid-70s. So all the other crews were, they were finally given the award in 2008. Yeah, yeah you're going to have to wait decades before we give you this medal that all of your colleagues already got. Ouch. Um, But still, Apollo 7, a really interesting legacy. Um, The Emmy Award-winning broadcasts were a huge preview about how media-savvy NASA would try to be on future moon missions. Through the space shuttle program and up to today, this idea of we need to communicate what we're doing to the public. And Apollo 7 really was the start, and that's why they won the Emmy Award. Yeah, absolutely. I I think Apollo 7... Uh, you know, you've got the hardware checking out, but I think like the longest term legacy here is this, that NASA is using media very effectively to communicate with the public, to share what they're doing in a way that like was really like genuinely engaging. Yeah, for sure. Uh, The most important thing though, is that the mission succeeded. And because of that, the success unlocked an entire new mission objective 
that had kind of been bubbling in the background while Apollo 7 was being planned. Yeah, the whole time that the Apollo 7 stuff is happening, in the background, they're talking about, are we going to get to the moon by the end of the decade? And keeping in mind, the end of the decade is, at this point, a little more than a year away. And that is a hard deadline set by John F. Kennedy, and they're really trying to hit it. So they're feeling time pressure. They're feeling pressure from the Soviet space program. They don't know what's going on there. Are they going to try to go to the moon or around the moon? What's going to happen there? Um, And so George Lowe, who was the head of the astronaut office at this point, suggested a major change in the Apollo playbook, suggested that Apollo 8, which was originally going to be a test around low Earth orbit, would instead fly around the moon. Now, this was a huge gamble. A lot of people at NASA thought that it was a reach, that it was kind of a ridiculous thing to do to try right after just getting this done. In the end, there was sort of a compromise, because while it was a reach, it was also something that a lot of people felt they could do, and that maybe they were being a little too careful And that uh, there was a lot of time pressure if they wanted to hit by the end of 69, getting people to the moon. So the compromise was, all right, let's plan this in the background, but it's only going to work if Apollo 7 is executed perfectly. And and that's what happened. The service module uh, was a rock star, that SPS engine, again, super vital to get to the moon and more importantly, to come back from the moon, Mm -hmm. passed with flying colors. And in just two months, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and William Anders would be going to the moon. That's right. The the engine passed the test. Next stop, moon. And we will tell the story of those three astronauts in December as they looped around the moon and took some amazing photographs and made some amazing statements. But that's for December. Uh, And that ends this special episode of Liftoff. If you want to find a bunch of resources about Apollo 7, we've collected a lot of stuff in the show notes this week. You can see those in your podcast app of choice or on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 83. While you're there, you can find a link to our Tumblr where we post space stories in between regular episodes. You can find an email address to send us feedback and follow up. Uh, Or you can just find us on Twitter. Uh, Jason is at jsnell, and you can find me there as ismh. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.